Welcome to Message Received. In this longer episode, Tim chats to Mitch Glick to discuss the hot topic, the future of work. Mitch has an aim to make work better for people, systems, and organizations. Welcome everyone to Message Received. My name is Tim Ferguson. I'm your host today. Really looking forward to a conversation with Mitch Glick. And we're gonna be talking about the future of work. It's a hot topic that I think anyone involved in the corporate world at the moment, whether you're an employee or running a company or you're a manager, you're a leader, this is on your mind. It's certainly on your mind if you're an entrepreneur in the workspace, the the need to both innovate the way your organization runs as well as seeing opportunity in helping others run organizations differently. I think there's a lot of interesting talk to be had there. Mitch is a organizational psychologist and comes at this topic of the future of work from that unique perspective. So with no further ado, let's dive in. Mitch, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tim. Really excited to be here. Let's start with organizational psychology. We've had one other guest on our show who has that title, but I'm still learning about this role and what it really means. So can you just give us a snapshot of your bio and what an organizational psychologist does? I like to think of it as an opportunity really to just make work better for people. Simple as that, full stop. I come at it from a slightly unique and interesting, I guess, road or path. I didn't start out this way. This wasn't my first career. I started out in the entertainment industry and started working on big American productions while going to undergrad in Toronto before getting a job in Los Angeles and working as an assistant producer for Vox for a number of years. And eventually decided to make a career change and became a clinical psychologist. And during that journey and that training, during my graduate studies, I realized that what I loved to do was working with systems and people and organizations. A lot of what I did on the entertainment side was around that. So I kind of put these two worlds together and fashioned my own journey to become an organizational psychologist. Very interesting. And I think that all the stereotypes of working in Hollywood is that you either need to be a psychologist to support a producer, or maybe you will need a psychologist if you've tried to support a producer. For those who is like the vast majority of us who've never really worked in that kind of environment, we've seen it from afar, we've seen it in the movies portrayed. But what what was it like? What was it like working in L.A.? I mean, I can't speak to it today, but from my experience back then, it was... And when was back then? What were the years? Working in the industry for about 10 years from 2000 until, yeah, 2009. For me, it was incredible. I'd had a lifelong dream to work in film and TV and, and at the highest level. And to be able to do that was really just such a gift. I always loved movies. My grandfather would take me to movies and we'd spend time alone together. It was just always an incredible escape and a way to connect with people and and stories. And then from the work itself, what I loved about it was mixing the two worlds of, of art and science. You're taking the technical side of how the story gets made physically, all these people, all this equipment and crews and the editing, all that stuff. And then you've got the really artistic side is how do you start crafting stories of people that might have never existed and putting that all together to create something tangible that sparks emotion, that's, that sparks wonder, that sparks excitement. 
the challenge, as I think you're alluding to, is an industry that has a lot of mystery behind it and a lot of desire to get into is very competitive. And it's also because I think it started off as an artistic endeavor, there really were very few checks and balances in how people would conduct themselves at times. I learned a ton. I really, to your point, you know, working with people with very different personalities, some very challenging, some very genuine and loving and caring and mentoring and others I wouldn't wish any of my friends or enemies to spend time with. So there's really a, a wide variety, but ultimately the, the most, I think, gratifying thing was having a career in that field really taught me how to work with teams and build a, a small organization, a small company, which is what a production is from the get-go. And from there, being able to learn about human beings behavior from a scientific standpoint has really, really helped me in my career today. I think that the idea of the future of work and make work better, just let's make work better, is so nicely captured in the dichotomy around Hollywood, which is that the, you make these, and you use the word magic, you know, you have the output, the results, the work that the industry produces the results are so amazing. People watch them around the world in multiple languages. We watch them again and again. We, you know, we love and venerate the actors and the directors and the writers. And yet we've learned through the, the Weinstein saga in particular, we've learned that there's this very dark side to it. Do the ends justify the means come into mind? And I think in a lot of organizations, while maybe not on such a dramatic level, they think about that equation or they justify that equation. And very often we'll say, yeah, I might, we might be treating people poorly. They might be burning out. They might be disengaged but we're getting the result that we need. And therefore that's the way it goes. Am I on the right path here? When you say make work better, you're talking about both the outcome of the work, what they produce, as well as the road to getting there. Like, how do you see that relationship? I think in our work that you and I do, people will come to us with a challenge. And sometimes I have to say, you know, is this a problem? And they'll say, well, yeah. And the question is then, well, how long has this been going on? And so some will say three weeks and some will say three years. And so the question becomes, when is a challenge really a challenge? When has it become a problem? What is the impact of these symptoms that whatever they may be that might come up? So it, it is, yes, the journey to get to wherever it is that company, that a team, that a product is trying to achieve. But it's also what is the outcome? I mean, the, the science tells us, the studies are very clear that the better the employee experience when employees feel valued and psychologically safe and have greater autonomy, mastery, purpose in their work, the outcomes are much better for the company and for the employees. I mean, just very simply, the cost of turnover, the cost of an employee burning out or leaving a team is so high that it is in the organization's best interest to create the best conditions for their employees, just at a very baseline. That doesn't even you know, take into account the, the, the loss of innovation, institutional knowledge, relationships, uncertainty from other team members when somebody leaves, ramp up time for a new employee. All these factors start to come in. And so the question is, well, nobody's left yet. Well, okay. But if they're not really engaged, if they're a little disengaged, not yet burnt out, not giving their best, team is talking offline around their displeasure, what is really going on? And then why are you going to wait for something to actually break and fall apart? So when do I need an organizational psychologist? It's easier to prevent a major problem than it is to fix one. I like to think of the work that 
I do and that my colleagues do as being able to lay foundations and create programs and develop strategies to improve things rather than fix things and enhance things rather than solve a problem that is a crisis. I think a lot of organizations employ psychologists like me, even in-house, to really consult internally at times for different teams and figure out, you know, how do we make the most of what we have and map that onto, let's say, a new strategic objective. What are the KPIs and OKRs that we're developing in order to start achieving those? What are the skills that are missing that might need to be elevated in order to create the conditions that are needed to reach these objectives? It encompasses a lot. I think that the work that I do most is probably around a bit of leadership and coaching that comes into it a lot. The advising, what are some of the systemic challenges that are present? What does the ecosystem look like? What needs to be altered, enhanced, changed, developed? What needs to be more effective? What's getting in the way are some of the questions that we'll ask. And how do you prioritize? What are some tools that we can talk about that are customizable to your team, to your leadership, to your employees, and figure out, is this the best tool for this type of objective where you're going? And create a roadmap is something we do want to kind of outline that. There's a lot of art in it. There's a lot of science, which is a lot of fun. There are some technical skills and tools that we've got to employ, whether that be assessments sometimes. Other thing we might do is really dig into the science and say, hey, this challenge that you're facing is something that we've seen, the world has seen. We have a study that says this is the best way to go about this. Whether they listen or not is, you know, is always a question. But part of the job, too, is influencing and relating and building rapport and relationships so that people feel that they have a trusted advisor on their side whenever they need it. So I'd like to come back in a minute to exactly that question of typical challenges or, hey, we've seen this before. What are the, some of the more common systemic challenges that you face? But before that, I just want to take one step back so that we can frame the discussion of the future of work and to say, okay, well, what is work? We use the word work as if we know what it means. And the more I look at it, I'm not sure it's clear to me what it even means anymore. So what is work in the best sense? And then talk about the types of challenges that we might face in an organization that make work not optimal. And then we'll we'll extend the conversation to, okay, well, what is the future of work gonna look like? What is the work gonna look like? And therefore, what are the challenges that we're likely to face and how do we prevent them from happening in the first place? So if we take that step back and I say, so Mitch, what is work? From an organizational psychologist's point of view, what is work? What's your answer? It's a great question. I'd say that it's what people do most of their life, more than anything. We spend more of our lives at work, more than seeing our partners, our kids, our parents. It's what we do the most. For some people, it's a means to an end. For some people, it is the only thing that they know how to do and have to do in order to survive. And I think it really is dependent on the local culture, on people's socioeconomic status, on certain opportunities that they've been privy to or not, and ultimately what the meaning of that job is to a particular person. For instance, you can get somebody who's in a custodial job in a hospital, and they've done great studies on this, that talk about how the same person in the same job who's cleaning bedpans and floors and doing really some challenging work physically and otherwise see their jobs completely differently. One person sees it as such as they just have to take this job. It's the only thing they can get and do to support their family. Another person sees it as really contributing to the health of patients. 
but they are doing important work. They get to, if they see a picture on the wall, they'll straighten it if it's crooked. Flowers need some water, they'll add water. They'll do whatever they can to make a patient more comfortable and make their room more comfortable so that they can feel that they're contributing to a much greater purpose in their job, in their life, in the hospital, for the people around them in their community. Are we defining work partly in the fact that it is what it occupies our time. It gives us either the income or the resources that we need to survive. And whether it's meaningful or not is almost in the eye of the beholder. Is it something like that? That's really my opinion. What does the work mean to you in your life? It's going to mean something very different to you, to me, and to what our listeners feel, depending where they are. At different points in life, it may be different. And I think when it comes down to the work that we end up doing, the work that I do with my clients and such, the question becomes, why are we all here, right? That comes down to motivation. We're doing this because this is what I've always dreamed of doing. That's a rare opportunity to have. And on the other side, it's I'm here because this is just what I need to do so that we can pay the rent. Usually it's somewhere in the middle um, for most of the workforce and hopefully skewing on it being work that does have some meaning, that does provide satisfaction and joy, a sense of community, a sense of belonging even at times to whether it be a cause or a team. Likewise, talked about this a bit earlier, but the issue of intrinsic motivation, the theory of self-determination is, I think, one of the best frameworks to think of, of work, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And when people feel those, that's when they feel more fulfilled. They feel engaged. They feel an affiliation. They feel like they are contributing, they're learning, they're growing, they have agency. Those are the employees you want. That's the condition that you'd love your employees to be, to be privy to. Work is, in a sense, abstract. It's not the clearest cut definition of work I could imagine, right? That, hey, it's the thing that we're spending most of our time doing. We're doing it in order to survive. And for some of us, it means very little. And for some of us, it means everything. It's a little bit subjective, let's say, in its nature. But it seems that when it comes to asking the question, what are the challenges? It's quite concrete. You can actually point to it and say, well, no, a, an organization where there's high sense of mastery, high autonomy, high purpose, that's going to be a healthy organization. And presumably one where there's low mastery, low autonomy, low purpose is going to be an unhealthy organization. Is that right? Like, can you paint the picture of some of the common systemic challenges that you see in organizations? Sure. Imagine the organization where, you know, or just take a team, right, where a team feels micromanaged or that their work is being scrutinized over and over and over again, or they're being told how to write their emails better all the time. So very little autonomy or they don't have flexibility and they really value that, have to ask permission every time they want to take a lunch break for an extra 15 minutes or go to the dentist. Very little autonomy in your life there. How does mastery play in? Feeling that one is improving at their job, that they're learning, developing, getting better. You never achieve it. I love mastery because it is that lifelong learning mindset. It's the continual growth and development and incremental movement in a direction of improvement. And so when somebody feels a sense of mastery, they are in, at times in flow. They just know that they're getting in there deep in the work. They feel that they have more confidence. They feel that they know how to do their job, but 
will continue to improve on it. And I think it's a it's a very powerful motivation because we want to feel like we have that sense of accomplishment as we work. I find it interesting you look at little kids when they first learn to cook or something like this. I remember my kids learning to, you know, make toast and uh, it's a big deal, right? That you know how to make toast and feeling that you make good toast. In fact, on Christmas, my older daughter made me a grilled cheese. So I had made them in their lives approximately 275 million grilled cheese sandwiches. So you got pretty masterful at it and you knew how to you know, make them really well. So she makes me this grilled cheese and I'm like, this is a great grilled cheese. And she was so proud. You know, she's 19 years old and she's normally like, you know, all too cool for school. It's innate in us, maybe this this desire for mastery. You, you mentioned purpose earlier, but just hit on it briefly now. What what does it mean? Sure. In your framework. I'll go there in a moment, but I think your example of mastery is so important because in in the business world and organizations, that mastery of getting good at something that's when you can start teaching others also, or feeling that you can teach others. That's a really important leadership skill and, and managerial skill. You want to be able to coach and, and to develop other people, and when you have that sense of hey, I've done this, how can I help you? do your job better. That's very fulfilling, both for the person doing the teaching and for the student, just like in your example. It sounds like it was really gratifying that your daughter made a grilled cheese. That was amazing. Passing that knowledge on is is incredibly powerful. So yeah, purpose, having a sense of duty, purpose, belonging, connection. Those are motivations that allow us to really, really zoom out, see that we're part of a much larger universe at times that you have an affiliation to something, that you have a connection. It's great when you work with people who work at nonprofits who are so purpose-driven. They really are there for a reason. Very few people are there just because they think it's an interesting job to, to try out. No, they really want to be part of something, part of making a difference, making a change, and have a lot of drive in that way. And it's amazing to see. You really just see their eyes light up and their dedication and devotion. Same thing when you look at sometimes even entrepreneurs and startup founders, that energy that they've invested into their idea and their projects and their company, and that comes out, it's a great sense of purpose. I think when we're talking about the middle of the pack, purpose can get muddy if, let's say, the message of the company, the brand is saying one thing, but their experience is disconnected from that. So there's a sense that the organization is not being transparent or information is not flowing freely. There's a lot of politics going on. You know, you start feeling like, do I really belong here? Do I want to belong here? What is really the mission? They say it's this, but it's that. How does that play out? And it starts to not feel right. And so you could see then, hey, I've got all this time in the world to do my job the way I want to do it, but I don't even know why I'm here anymore. The money is great, but I don't see where this company is going anymore. And I feel like I need to do something differently. Yeah, whenever you hear the money's great, but dot, 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 you know, there's an interesting conversation to be had. What about the flip side with organizations? I think when I know my organization, we struggle with it. I think a lot of our clients do where we are living and working in a capitalist structure. So the making of money, the making of profit is an essential to being in business, having a business to even talk about. And yet it would not be your purpose. It would not be your stated purpose, but it, it's almost like breathing 
I don't get up in the morning and say, hey, my purpose is to breathe, but it kind of is. Like, take that out and nothing else is going to happen. How do companies keep that balance right so that it doesn't make a scene like our purpose to make meaningful change is we're being hypocritical because we also know that we need to make money? What does that say to you? You're hitting on a, a really timely topic, which is both some of the questions a lot of employees are asking themselves at this point in a pandemic and, and earlier on. Is this job doing it for me? Am I getting back what I'm giving in? But I think what you're speaking to maybe a bit more specifically is really the question of how we prioritize our stakeholders and the legacy way, you know, from, from let's say the second industrial revolution was let's just make profit. People are really just a tool to make a product and get something made that we need to continue to sell. And it doesn't really matter what happens. As long as we keep making money, everything's fine. The challenge is today, most of that work is, is done by a machine, a computer, an algorithm that is rote, whereas the knowledge workers require more. They require a sense that the company is actually there to do more than make a profit. And they can feel that. The current model of stakeholder capital, where companies are responsible first towards their employees, their community, the environment, and many other things that were never part of a discussion at board meetings, now have the, the shareholder at the end of it, because that's where they're going to see the most value if everything else is being taken care of first. It's the oxygen mask on the airplane. You put it on yourself first before you put it on others. So when your organization is taking care of its employees, itself, its health, um, and longevity, everything else can then be attended to in perhaps a better way. And I think this is sort of where we're getting into, you know, really the, the meat around the future of work, where, you know, we start seeing these sea changes that are occurring within society and admittedly have a much more of a North American lens on it, but seeing the social changes and, and between the pandemic and questions around social justice and, and racial equality, diversity and inclusion, those issues are becoming front and center in the boardroom for senior executives when before they were relegated to being, well, you can have your diverse club within the company, that's great. Go meet for drinks on Friday. Now it's, no, this is a strategic imperative that the company needs to invest in. It's a resource. The old way of working was people are a cost center. Today, in the future, people are an innovation center. And so I think the important thing here is that we're not thinking about defining the future of work and predicting the future and getting out a crystal ball and pontificating, but it's really about preparing for the future and creating for most positive and creative outcomes. As we prepare for the future of work, are you saying that by focusing on the fundamentals of mastery, autonomy, and purpose, that will lead us to good decisions around the future of work? Is that the basic premise? It's also using that way of thinking and this idea that fulfillment for human beings within organizations comes with a lot of other really important systemic tools that should be employed. And those are areas around experimentation and pivoting. How do you change course when something isn't working? How do you create conditions for people to feel like they can just take an idea and run with it and try something out? Most people come to work every day to do a great job. They want to succeed. They want their colleagues to succeed. They want the company to succeed. So this old way of thinking, this legacy way of thinking that we need to 
you don't look out because there could be some bad actors. People just want to take advantage of the company if we don't look over their shoulder. That's much fewer and far between. So do you want to create a system to prevent something from going wrong with a very, very small amount of people? Or do you want to create a system that really works to build up everybody in your organization and make them more satisfied, more fulfilled, more productive, more innovative, contribute more? I think the idea of creating an experimentational culture of one where you can try something, where you can think like a scientist, what does it mean to not know something? That's scary for a lot of people. You're in a meeting. What's going to happen if we make this decision? I don't know. <laughs> um, that can be really scary in, in some cultures. So if we create the condition that allows you to say that and say, okay, well, I don't know. And here's how I'm thinking about trying to find out. Then that's a much different conversation. And that way you're starting to iterate and develop and try and know that whatever you think is the answer, you might be really genuinely surprised and not to be beholden to whatever that thought is and attached to it and be able to say, no, that doesn't work anymore. Let's try something else. Read a statistic that there was uh, entrepreneurs who did not pivot from their idea in a recent study who just said, no, this is the idea, this is the product, on average made about $300 a month. Those who made a pivot made 12,000. Yes, I can see that. I've got Andy Grove's book on my desk. He's the CEO of Intel. And they went from memory chips to processors. Such an archetypal story, what you're referring to there. Maybe the ultimate pivot story of all time. So when you're talking about the future of work, you are not debating whether it's work from home or work from office. Like a lot of the buzz out there about future of work, you would think it was the main concern was around hybrid or remote working. That hasn't even come up in what you've been saying so far. When you think of the future of work, what role does that play in a company trying to get it right? That starts to get into the mindset of some binary thinking, right? Oh, well, if it's hybrid, then we need to be at the office two days a week at minimum. That means that it's hybrid. If you're there one, then that doesn't really sound like hybrid. It sounds like remote. I think it's more important to think of it as more of a design exercise and bring up questions within teams based on what they do and how they work and what they need to produce at the end of the day to ask those questions on a much smaller scale. So team of scientists who have to be in a lab, that's a very different way of working than people who are in marketing. That's a completely different job. So what do they need to be successful in their role? What about on their team? Maybe their team actually has no need to be in the office except for getting together for a conference that makes a meaningful impact in how they choose to work. But then what are the tools that they're given by the organization to do that? I think there's more a question of what is the best way to do it rather than this way or that way. And presumably the way that we would do it, it would allow us to live our purpose to its maximum. It would give me maximum autonomy and it would allow me to develop maximum mastery. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So the question is, should we work remotely or not remotely is the wrong question. The right question is, what's our purpose? What do we need to be autonomous? And what do we need to achieve mastery? Yeah, what do you need to improve? In this whatever way you're working, does it allow you to have meaningful conversations with your senior leadership and managers that you're actually connecting? Do you feel like those are productive conversations anymore or are really they just another Zoom meeting and you're both kind of exhausted by the end of the day and not really paying attention and nobody's really saying what needs to be said? As managers and leaders, what are you doing to bridge that communication gap? 
have the courage to say, we keep having these meetings. I don't know if I'm showing up in the best way because it's at five o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday. Why don't we do this? If you're available tomorrow at eight, kids are off to school. Let's do this meeting on your balcony if you have it. Do it in your living room with a cup of coffee. Get out of the usual. Let's change it up. But for that, managers and leaders also need the mental space to think about that. If I feel I have fairly low autonomy to make such decisions in my organization, where do I get started? I want to prepare my, myself and my team for the future of work. I have this sense that it means this rich, psychologically safe environment where we can be open and speak the truth, let's say. But I, I don't feel like I can make that kind of call and say, oh, let's talk at eight o'clock in the morning because it's, just, it's not allowed or whatever. What's your encouragement to the listener? I think if anybody who's been in a job can relate to doing something and choosing to do something that they're not supposed to do, right? There's always going to be that little thing that you do that is not the cultural norm and you feel awkward at times doing it. But then the question was the consequence of either doing it or not doing it. People have to ask themselves, just because we do things this way or have done things this way doesn't mean that it has to continue to be this way. What's the risk? I ask a lot of clients who are on Teams calls 12 hours a day right now, and I ask, why do you accept all the calls? And they're like, well, there's just no other way. If you don't accept, you're just going to get badgered until you do. So the option, I guess, is what? If you can't change the culture, is this part of what's leading to the great resignation? People are being pushed to make this decision to say, hey, you've reduced my autonomy. I don't have a strong sense of purpose. I can't feel mastery of listening to endless discussions on teams. My feeling of being at work has been diminished and therefore I'm going somewhere. Is that what the great resignation is? Part of it, you've changed the way that people work without asking them to contribute to that change sort of said, this is just the way that we do things without designing it. I mean, these companies are starting to do that. LinkedIn actually has a vice president of FlexWork. And companies are starting to invest in that and saying, hey, we need to be focused on building this resource, right? You're not going to say to your marketing team, look, we've got a new office that we're building. Can you guys go figure out, you know, what furniture we need and go buy chachkas for the wall and go pick up a coffee machine while you're at it? No, that's not what their job is. You want people who are experts and have knowledge to facilitate either those conversations for those teams or provide best practices to build what they need in order to do the best work possible, whatever the circumstances are. Since 2001, about every nine to 10 years, there's been a major international crisis, starting with 9-11, financial crisis in 2008. Now we've had this pandemic that's gone on for over two years. Is it going to be another variant? We don't know. So how do we just create conditions so that people can continue to work at their best in the way that they feel that they can accomplish the best work that they can and not need to think, oh, I don't know if I can decline this meeting because it may signal that I, I don't care about it. The better question is hitting the pause button and saying, stop being reactive and be responsive. Let's get into the habit of hitting pause, slowing things down for a second to be able to regroup, to strategize and ask the question, how might we do this in a more efficient way, in a way that allows all of us to participate in an engaged fashion? Is this meeting required for everybody? Let's ask that question. Some companies have started to simply record meetings and say, look, you can watch it or listen to it at twice the speed and just get the highlights. 
ask a colleague to say, hey, what are the, the highlights of this meeting? I, I really can't make it. I mean, if you don't have time in your day to do any deep work, don't sit and strategize in the way that leaders need to, then they're not doing their job either. And so you end up having this really unfortunate cascading effect where people are just going through the motions. And the results of that, we don't know what they'll be, but I can tell you that it's very likely that people aren't really engaged then. They're not really content with their work and their jobs and their teams are going to suffer. And so if that happens, then it means then their direct reports are probably not experiencing the level of development that they should. They're not getting that mentorship. They're not making those connections. They're not learning enough. And so that just starts to carry over. Well, I feel like you've just painted a picture of what a healthy organization would look like. And I think people listening can evaluate how close to that level of health they are currently. In our closing moments, if you could just give two or three bits of advice or guidance on if I felt like, hey, we really are suffering from a psychological malaise here in our organization. We need to be more in the direction that you're talking about with your map model. Some guidance for us. What do we do? Well, first ask yourself, is this getting in the way of innovation, pure and simple? Because that's really what is driving every company today. And innovation doesn't have to be inventing the next flying car, but innovation can simply be, are we conducting meetings in a different way, in a way that's actually designed for the people who are attending them and what they need to do their work in the best possible way? I'd say the other thing is you need to create dialogues and narratives that are clear, honest, transparent, for your employees about what the future is looking like and what decisions are being made. If people are constantly thinking about whether they can be made redundant, then they're not focused on doing great work. If they do have a sense that they may not have a job anymore, but at the same time, your organization is going to upskill them and put them in a new one and put them in training programs and retain as many people as possible because it's in everybody's best interest, that's a different feeling the employees are going to end up having. The other thing might be, look, when it comes down to it, companies spend money in many different ways, right? But on their balance sheet, the number one expenditure is people. And if you're not investing in your people more, then that's really unfortunate. It's like a country not investing in healthcare and social services and ways to prop up the population when they need it and to look out for them in some fashion. It doesn't mean that it's a, you know, you have to create a coddled workforce. It means you've got to give people the tools and resources to do the best work possible, create projects for people that want to be a part of, get excited. So I think I heard three things there. The first is ask the question, is this getting in the way of innovation to make sure your dialogue is as honest as you can make it? And the third is be investing in your people because they're your, it's a cliche, but it shouldn't be, right? They are your greatest resource, literally. I want to thank you for a very, I would call it a deep conversation, very reflective. Thank you for your time very much and uh, good luck helping organizations with the future of work. Thanks so much, Tim. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Message Received. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please watch out for the next one in the series, Discovering Vertical Growth with Itziar Kanamasis.